Hungary has been making international headlines recently for uh, refusing to impose sanctions on Russia over the Ukraine war, for resisting the EU-wide ban on Russian oil and for frustrating the attempts of Finland, Sweden and Norway to join NATO. Our next guest has a lot of insight into why the Hungarian government, now run by the conservative nationalist Viktor Orban, has taken the position they have. Victor Sebastian is a journalist from Budapest who grew up in the UK after his parents fled the chaos and brutality during and in the wake of the Second World War. He went back to Budapest often and covered the, the fall of the Soviet and Hungary's role in the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall. And he's now documented the history of Europe's grand and tragic city on the Danube and how its geographical location at the centre of Europe has been both benefit and burden. In his new book, Budapest, Between East and West, published here by Hachette. Victor, welcome to our little wireless programme. We'll talk about present-day Budapest and Hungary's place in Europe uh, later, but first... Can you take us back to the, uh, well, the, to the creation myth? Tell us what Hungarians believe is their ancient history. Well, first, thank you so much for um, inviting me on your program. Yeah, the Hungarians or the Magyars, it's a mixture of, of, as you say, myth and fact. The fact is that they were one of the tribes in in the great migrations that moved from the east-west. This, the Magyar tribe that spoke their own, own language were from Kazakhstan originally. And they moved west to the Carpathian Basin. They were a, a rough tribe of bandits, um, nomadic bandits, really. But they, they eventually liked where they, they landed in this wonderful plateau with, with this river that then um, fed large parts of Central and Eastern Europe, and they settled there. But, um, but they weren't alone, were they? Because, as you point no. out, there were Celts, <clears throat> Central Asians, and, of course, the Romans. Absolutely. The central Magyar myth was that they more or less arrived in virgin territory to build for their tribe, to build their state. But, in fact... Um, before that, it had been a, it had been a Quincum was was a Roman town that they occupied after the Celts um, were there originally, and the Romans were there for four centuries. A Quin- the Roman town was was had forty thousand people in it. It was a very it was very important city for the Romans because they were on the edge of their empire, fighting the barbarian the barbarian tribes. They were they were holding back. Um, holding back the invasion, so it was considered really important, um, important place in the in the edge of their empire. What did the Magyar's people speak? Because uh, I learned from you that Hungarian is unlike any other European language. Yeah, it's a Finno-Ugric language, so it doesn't have any relation to any of the Romance languages, the Latin-based languages, not any of the Germanic languages, nor any of the Slav languages. It is a distant cousin of Finnish, 
um, as I say, Finno-Ugric, but it is an, what Hungarians call it an orphan language in the middle of Europe, unlike any other language. And that has played a large part in their history, that it's cut them off and separated them. But something they've they grew to be extremely extremely proud of. You describe the Majo tribes as uh, Marvel's horsemen and horsewomen, and Christianity put a stop to that sort of gender equality. Tell me about the first Christian king. The first Christian king, um, who's a saint. Um, is, is still much revered in, in Budapest. There's everything from uh, squares to him, streets named after him, and now a giant shopping mall. Everything to Istvan. Stephen is, a, is still a huge figure in, in the history. But it was his father, Geza, who made the big decision to, to that again is very relevant to my, to, to my story, that it's Hungary between East and West. It was very much a political decision to make Hungary uh, a Roman Catholic country rather than Eastern, the Eastern Orthodox, like most of the Balkans. And that has a very significant bearing on, the, on a large part of my history. Stephen was, an, was also was trying to create a nation state before nation states were really existing properly in, in most of Europe. Much of what happened later is, was created by him. He built up the Western European idea of feudalism, which then lasted into the 19th century in Hungary. And um, he Christianized the country in a very brutal way, which I, you know, which, which I describe. But it was very much him that wanted to make um, Hungary, a Western country rather than an Eastern country. The good King Stephen had a stance on immigration that contrasts uh, from the leaders of Hungary today, and uh, he wrote a wonderful guide to ethical kingship. Can you quote from that? Yes, it's from his exhortations written to his son, um, and he said, Immigrants are of great benefit, he wrote in one section. They bring with them different tongues and different customs, different skills and different weapons. And all of that is an ornament to the country and alarms our enemies. So, my son, I advise you to face new settlers and treat them decently. Then they will prefer to stay with you rather than go elsewhere. A nation with but one tongue and one custom is feeble and fragile. I can't so, tell you how relevant that is to the Australia I grew up in where we were so resistant to to waves of migrants and yet, uh, you know, that... This is, not, this is not quoted very often in modern-day Hungary either, despite their reverence to St. Stephen. Um, in Hungary, they've recently built another Iron Curtain to keep immigrants out. Hungary's also had its own version of the Magna Carta called the Golden Bull, but it differed in very significant and problematic ways, didn't it, Victor? Well, it gave, um, like, like it, was, it was only a few years later, seven years later, and again, the same reason. It was that the unruly barons were trying to rebel against the king. In some ways, it's very similar because there was nothing in the Golden Bull or indeed in the Magna Carta about the people all of it is about giving rights to the barons and giving rights to the aristocracy. But of course, what it gave the, the aristocracy in Hungary was centuries afterwards of paying no taxation of any kind. 
And unlike in the Magna Carta, which set out a whole range of duties the barons had to uh, um, build armies for the king and provide knights and, and soldiers, there was none of that duty that the Hungarian barons um, had. And there were far more Hungarian aristocrats as a percentage of the population. And this continued again to much, much later in, in the history for hundreds of years afterwards. Than in most other than in most other countries, which again caused its own problems later. And it, it had no taxation base. It had no taxation base, so the taxes were even for tolls on the roads and things like that. That was considered a tax. So the though the aristocrats never had to pay that. It was the peasants and the middle class that had to pay that. And I was about to say, ominously, it banned Jews from owning property, and they well, had to pay much higher taxes. Yes, but that wasn't only in, in Hungary. That was almost everywhere in Western Europe at the time, in medieval times, and indeed even, even much later in large parts, of, large parts of Europe. But yes, anti-Semitism had very deep roots in Hungary, going way back. Now, one of the next great leaders was a true Renaissance man with a very different attitude towards the Jews. Yes. He liberalized um, the Jews, although he did continue taxing them more heavily than others. But he gave them uh, far more rights to, to practice religion and far more rights to live in areas which where previously they had been banned. Um, Matthias was, was his name, and he was in the 15th century. Um, and he was, a, he was a Renaissance prince in the old-fashioned way, partly because at that time, Hungary was a large land empire in Central Europe, much, much larger than, than it is now. And it was a very rich country. It had almost all the gold mines in Europe in the medieval times. So he, had a, he, he, could, he could raise enormous money through the gold mines. But he built, he, he attracted a large number of Renaissance scholars. Um, he built a, a wonderful, wonderful Renaissance palace, which was then destroyed. And the, and the court, the, the, the court of Machat was one of the most glittering, glittering courts. And Buddha was one of the most glittering towns in the late 15th, late 15th century. And I learned from you that Matthias also commissioned works from da Vinci and Botticelli. Absolutely. And he also had the biggest library in Europe as, apart from the Vatican. Um, thousands of volumes of books, mostly, of course, this was before the, the age of printing. He was called the Raven King, and he put his um, the Raven um, stamp on every book in his library, and it numbered uh, something like 5,000 volumes at one point, which was, which was huge. And he built a huge separate palace just for his book, just for his library. He was, he was, he was an extraordinary man, a, a, a show off. As, um, he, he did this to he did this to show off to other kings and to see how civilized he was and how rich he was. But also, it was saying something again about about Hungary being a centre of civilization and culture in Europe. Now, 1526, the Turks invade. They strip the palace, destroy the library but it remains an occupied Ottoman town for 150 years. Yes. Well, this, of course, was when the Turks were trying to basically conquer all of Europe, and they got to the gates of Vienna where they were, where they were stopped. 
But then they built this fortress in Hungary, in Budapest, or Buda, which, yes, occupied for 100, 150 years. Very few Christians lived there at that time. It was big, it was a you know it was essentially a Muslim town with just a few Christian civilians. But the Ottomans also <laughs> tolerated Jews, and there were many Jewish people who moved back yeah. in the face of pogroms. They they tolerated Jews in the same way they tolerated Christians, but they gave they gave them just as much freedom as they gave the Jews, and many Jews from elsewhere in the Hungarian domains that weren't occupied and from Czech, um, from what, Bohemia and, and Poland and elsewhere went to, um, which were not occupied by the Turks, went to Buddha to escape the anti-Semitism, which caused very much trouble for them later. The Habsburgs, of course, ultimately defeat the Turks, but uh, the coffee houses they left behind would become... There were a few legacies of the the Turks. The bathhouses were great ones, some of which still exist and were absolutely wonderful um, public baths um, that dotted around Budapest, some of them dating from the 16th century, which is still great. Uh, Paprika, which is a, a very important thing for Hungarian cuisine, and um, coffee, which is probably the greatest um, contribute, you know, one of the greatest legacies still left, uh, physical legacies still left, which when you think about it, isn't bad considering how other conquerors that have ruled Hungary over the years let, have, have left. Um, let's compare them to Hitler's Nazis or Stalin's commissars, and those three things are not bad. I'm talking to Victor Sebastian about uh, Budapest between East and West, published by Hachette. So let's skip forward to 1801 when the Jacobin uh, Kaczynski decides the best hope of change in Hungary was through language and culture. Yes, the Hungarian language was in danger. There was the feeling amongst a growing number of nationalists that the uh, Hungarian language, which defined um, nationhood to them, um, was fast disappearing. So they, they stood no chance of, of, of defeating the Habsburg Empire, which was, which was totally entrenched. But part of the process of, of creating nationhood was to revive the language. And this is this was a process that went on for you know a hundred hundreds of years, not only in Hungary, elsewhere in, in the Habsburg lands, but particularly in Hungary. So that that and they so they created basically they created modern Hungarian. It's interesting that Latin was still the official language, yeah. but the nobles and middle class read and spoke German, so only the uh, the poor spoke Hungarian. Yes, that's right. And it was a minority. And even lots of the poor, in order to get by, had to know German. It was governed governed in in all the law the parliament, what there was of a parliament. Everything was done in everything was done in Latin. Yeah. The only country in Europe where that was still so. And again, that separated that's the separation between between East and West. It was very it was very important for the nobles that they kept their Latin. Now, towards the turn of the last century, Budapest is flourishing once again, so did the Jewish population, and you say they became the backbone of the growing bourgeoisie. Yes. I mean, modern modern Budapest and its wealth in the mid to late 19th century 
was was driven to a very large extent. There wasn't a middle class with a with a a growing middle class with a stake in society in a, in a, in a way there was in large parts of Western Europe, in Britain, for England, for example, you know, which was the workshop of the world, all that sort of thing, and and in France and in in Germany, it was it was the nobles had a. a, a just had a had a had no respect at all for anyone in trade, so that left a vast area of of business people, um and and finance people, um to step in, and it was it was to a large extent the Jews who stepped in to that and created um the wealth, and and created to a large extent. The modern city of Budapest, and of course, it became known as Judapest colloquially. Yes, exactly, Judapest. Yeah, even by lots of Jews. When that magnificent uh, seven hundred room Parliament was completed in yes, nineteen hundred and four, only seven percent of the male population could vote. Talk to that for me. Well, yes, it's it is the iconic building. All the picture postcards. Um, uses this wonderful. It is a beautiful building. It is extraordinary. However, it's you know it's the largest uh, parliament building in the world, and for most of the Hungary's um, history, had had um, pretty much the least democracy. Um, one can say so. It so yeah. When when it was built, it had seven percent, and at that point, Hungary was. Um, had uh, was a big colonial empire. It had all of Slovakia, all of Croatia, large part of what is now Serbia. It was a much, much bigger country, and it gave absolutely no right democratic rights to any of the other nations. Which again, it had a democratic deficit, so very few people could vote, and even then, not in the secret ballot until until the middle of the twentieth century. I want to go back to Judapest briefly to make the point that uh, many Jews converted to Christianity and/or changed their names to be accepted, including your own great grandfather. Yes, my own great grandfather was called Abraham Schwartz, but yeah, anglicised the name to Sebastian. So yeah, it was the it was it was considered the entry to to upper crust society and into what was then known as society you couldn't you couldn't there were whole places you couldn't enter um clubs societies all kinds of things any of the aristocracy basically unless you changed your your religion so it was yeah it was the way of getting along Let's now jump to 1999 hungary joins nato and the eu and couple of years later, but it has been resisting Europe's response to the war in Ukraine. Victor, why? Um, well, the obvious, simple, one practical reason is that um, it is very dependent, more dependent than almost any other country on Russian oil and gas, so that's an obvious one. Um, but also... Oh, the, the the kind of illiberal democracy that that um, that the leader Viktor Orbán is trying to create has chimes quite a lot with with um, with Vladimir Putin's view uh, views of democracy, 
I'm not trying to say Orban is, is anything like the ogre that, that, that Vladimir Putin has turned out to be, but there are, there are in, in a large amount of the, of, of, of the rhetoric, there are similarities. And Hungary has got closer and closer to, um, to, to Russia since, certainly since Viktor Orban took over in 2010. Um, well, to be fair, we should a, also point out that Hungary has <clears throat> taken in uh, almost 700,000 refugees <clears throat> from Ukraine. Yes, yes, that's true. And, I, and, I'm, and other European countries in various ways have closed up to the Russian uh, ruling class. So Hungary is not alone there. Um, I come, you know, my other country, um, my country, Britain, as as did so in its way too. So I'm uh, I'm trying to say, though, but the main practical reason is um, that that they've made lots of special deals. Um, Russians and the Hungarians made lots of special deals about energy, and that's at the root of it. Um, but there is also an ideological. Um, an ideological closeness too, which is ironic considering Hungary's history with Russia, um, which is which has often been, and even in very very recent history, has has, has not been one of extreme um, placements. So he's kind he's he's kind of of, of changed a, a national consciousness um, to some extent. But it is true, and the people. I was in Budapest very recently, um, only three three weeks ago, um, and uh, people there um, ha- the, the, the 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 war to many people, the war in Ukraine has deep resonance with Hungary. Which can remember there are many people there who remember just as my parents um, you know, did remember what happened in 1956 when. Budapest was, you know, there were Russian tanks in 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 Budapest that um, crushing a crushing a revolt of 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 Hungar of, of Hungarians. So it has a deep resonance amongst many people, and they open up their wallets, open up their homes, open up their hearts to um, to many Hungarian um, Ukrainian refugees. I I feel I have to mention Orbán's speech in 2018. We must state that we do not want to be diverse and do not want to be mixed. We do not want our own colour, traditions and national culture to be mixed with those of others. We do not want this. We do not want that at all. We do not want to be a diverse country. Victor, what are your hopes for Budapest and for Hungary? Um, Well, I hope that eventually um, they Get back to democracy and not their illiberal, um, illiberal democracy, which is what all the hopes were. I was there in 1989 when they were at the forefront of of liberating um, Eastern Europe from the Soviet Union, and the hopes then were extraordinary. Um, I hope that the steady move towards authoritarianism there and a and essentially, it's become very similar to the one-party state of the last years of communism. I hope that gets overturned, and um, and the populist revolution is put firmly in its place. Victor, thank you very much for your time. Victor Sebastian, journalist and author of Budapest Between East and West. And, of course, we only 
touched on aspects of its history, I commend the book to you. It's published in Australia by Hachette. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.